following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcasting Network. For a full list of our shows, as well as breaking sports news and engaging feature stories, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Tales from the Association. I'm Chris Horwardell, and my guest this week is Chris Anstey. This was a fun conversation, as Chris Anstey's career is both varied and interesting. Growing up as a star tennis player and coming from Australia, Anstey has a unique perspective on his career and the NBA in general. As we were on an international call, there are some audio hiccups, and I apologize for those, but don't let that cause you to stop listening early, because this is really interesting from start to finish. Thank you so much for your continued support on iTunes. Please keep the ratings and reviews coming. We do appreciate them. That is it for the intro. Here is this week's episode of Tales from the Association featuring Chris Anstey. Enjoy. Tales from the Association, yeah, it's going down. This the podcast, yeah, you heard it all around. Players hit us with that career, cause you know that basketball, man, is not always there. Sometimes it come and go from the recruitment to the college phase, back to the NBA draft, yeah, that's not days. Playing internationally, and at the life at a basketball, man, they gonna tell us all how it go. See, story is how now, now you know. Tales from the Association. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to Tales from the Association. My name is Chris Horwardell, and my guest today is probably the most accomplished tennis player to ever grace the show, former NBA first-round pick and NBL MVP, Chris Anstey. Chris, thanks for coming on the show. What a wonderful introduction. It's something to hang my head on. <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk about your journey. You uh, only started playing basketball seriously at 17 years old, and before that you were one of Australia's best young tennis players, getting all the way up to being ranked number two as a 15-year-old. What was it that drew you to tennis growing up? Yeah, I fell into it. It was something I loved playing as a, a very young kid, and uh, that was my childhood. Um, you know, a lot of my close friends today are still those I made from, from my junior tennis days, but uh, love the sport, continue to love the sport, and uh, yeah, I suppose even through my basketball career, I almost loved it just as much, but uh, clearly uh, the way I was built was, was better suited to basketball. Mm-hmm. Do you, you know, people talk about, you know, people who grow up with maybe a dance background or a soccer background, it helps their basketball. Do you think playing tennis growing up helped your agility, helped your basketball overall? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And that thing, agility, absolutely. Um, you know, I was never the quickest tennis player in the state or anything like that. But, you know, I'm comparing myself to some really small, really quick athletes. So mm-hmm. I, I always felt that I moved pretty well. Um, you know, it was one of the, the reasons I got drafted was my ability to get up and down the floor and probably change direction. And I suppose the other thing it does, it helps with your reflexes and mm-hmm. your, your depth perception and, and things like that, which, you know, catching a basketball as simple as it sounds or, or, or weighting a pass correctly isn't something that comes instinctively to everyone. And I guess mm-hmm. those sort of things tended to come a little bit easier to me when I picked up the game. Sure. Like I said, you were ranked all the way up to number two as a 15-year-old. Honestly, do you remember who that number one person was in front of you? 
No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> um, I, 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 you know, I, I, some of the man, people are always interested in the names and probably the biggest one that Australian tennis fans remember that I grew up playing with was Mark Filipusa. Sure. He went on to have a very successful uh, tennis career and, and still does. Yeah, that was my next question. How did you get to meet Mark? How did you guys start playing together? Uh, just the same junior club and association. He was one year below me. Uh, but we were at a, a small club in uh, in Melbourne suburbs, and yeah, we grew up in the same area. Yeah. So Mark's like six four, six five. Do you think you play tennis professionally? Do you pursue that if you're six four, six five instead of seven foot? Yeah, I'd pro- probably not. I, it's a hard one to, to to figure out. But you know, one thing I do know is that I was a better doubles player. Than, than I was singles player, um, which probably almost should have been a hint early on that I was, I was looking for something more team-oriented. But um, no, nah, look, it's, singles got away from me a little bit. The, the really good players at the top end started putting a gap between themselves and where I thought I could get to. And you know, it became pretty apparent as much as I would have loved to have. You know, My life goal was to play in Wimbledon. It just wasn't going to happen. Sure. So I talked to a lot of big guys who were kind of pressured into playing basketball. Was that something that happened to you, or was this just a love aside from tennis as well? No, I, I fell into it. My, I've got three younger brothers, and my, my next brother down, who was at the time 15, was playing in a local game, and uh, they were short on numbers one night, and he convinced me to, to come and fill in, and uh, I went down and played in a men's D-grade team at the local stadium and there so happened to be a basketball scout watching his own son uh, on another <laughs> court and looked across and had never seen me before clearly because it was my first game and uh, you know came across and introduced himself and you know, probably took me three months to, to get back to him because I wasn't really interested but the tennis season finished, I gave him a call and Thought I'd go down and see what basketball was like. <laughs> well, that did work out for you. Eventually, you do turn to basketball. You sign with the Melbourne Tigers of the NBL as a you know eighteen, nineteen year old. What do you remember about that first season playing basketball? Uh, Andrew Gaze, I remember he was mm. the most famous Australian basketball player who I hadn't heard of, but realized very quickly how big a deal he was. But <laughs> probably the thing I remember is how daunting it was and how far behind. Everybody else, I, I was. Um, I, I just completed uh, year twelve, so I, I had some time off, um, and uh, you know, I committed myself to to as many hours in every single day as I possibly could to try to catch up and see where where it could take me. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Andrew Gaze because you know you did get the chance to play alongside him, and this is a guy who a lot of people consider the greatest Australian basketball player of all time. What can you tell us about Andrew? An incredible scorer, just a guy that, you know, not the best athlete and, you know, not the biggest, strongest, fastest, anything like that, but his ability to shoot the ball and score the ball. Um, and I think one of the things that Australian Australian basketball players, as a rule, do pretty well is something he was the best at, and that's, you know, play without the ball in your hands, you mm-hmm. know, find a way to work and get yourself open. Uh, to take higher percentage shots without the ball in your hands. And he was always active, always moving, always back-cutting. Um, certainly learned a lot in that aspect from him. Why do you think you know he didn't work out a little bit better in his stints in the NBA? I was a little bit surprised to see 
how how short and sort of ineffective they were. Yeah, probably defensively. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he struggled. Uh, you know, even in the in the Australian NBL, he would generally guard the the least threatening offensive player. I would I would probably say, and you know, which is fair enough when he's playing so many minutes. But probably that the ability to to defend someone one on one and yeah, you know, I suppose the athletes are bigger and longer and the internet the way the game's officiated the NBA probably didn't allow him to, to get to the line as often as he did at home and mm-hmm. you know, he was always gonna be able to score the ball and I suppose his game was suited more to international officiating than it was the NBA. <laughs> Sure. Well, I mean, even part of it is kind of the era he played in, too, because that was a much more physical era of basketball. Whereas if he comes along today, it seems like with his ability to shoot, with his ability to move without the ball, you know, this is probably a guy who gets you 15 points a night. Yeah, it could very well be. Um, It's it's always funny. I've always sort of had that thing in the back of my head with me as well Mm -hmm. as that. As a big who taught himself to shoot the ball, I probably probably would have been better suited five or ten years later. Um, But uh, you know what? You play in the area that in the area that you're in, and uh, we enjoy watching people. We we enjoy watching the game evolve, and as we get older, you know, we tell people a little better, and we'd like to think we would have been able to do that as well. (laughs) So another guy that you, uh, I believe, you played with at some point was Mark Bradkey. And uh, Mark is a guy who played for my beloved Philadelphia 76ers for a brief period of time. Is that another guy you think maybe if he comes along at another time, better basketball player, better career? Yeah, look, I I think he was the toughest guy I ever played against, Mm. Um, certainly in Australia. Um, His physicality and, you know, just his dominance. uh, And internationally as well, he, he had a fantastic international career and, I suppose didn't receive the accolades because he often played with Andrew Gaze and, and, and a guy named Leonard Copeland who mm. took many of the highlights. But he, you know, was just that physical presence that you know I think he's one of Australia's best ever big men. And you know, yeah, we'd love to have seen him stick around at the 76ers for a little bit longer. Um, just didn't work out for him at the time. Yeah, well, you know, it's. Uh, I guess that was mid to late 90s something like that and we waited a little while but we finally got that australian player who's going to help the sixers franchise <laughs> yeah you did <laughs> yeah look and ben and ironically ben's uh, father dave was also a teammate of andrew's marks and my, my own in my rookie year um so there's a close relationship with many of the melbourne tigers and the Simmons family and uh, you know, he's, he's special. We've known he's special since he was at eight stage in Australia. He was playing against 11th and 12th graders and doing what he does now in the NBA, just dominating players that were older than him. So he could very well, you know, when we look back at his career, be recognised as the best Australian basketball player in history, I think. But, you know, He's had an amazing start, but the longevity mm. is something that certainly will come into it. Well, I certainly hope that that is the way it goes. But let's get back to you. You know, after that first year with the Tigers, yeah. you're with the Southeast Melbourne Magic uh, for a couple of seasons. Why move from the Tigers to the Magic? Uh, because of their coach. Um, mm. Brian Gorgeous was for me, the best development coach in the country and you know, we trained in the same building and I would walk past and see how hard they trained. 
uh, it was a different level. It was built around youth and it was built around improvement. And then I suppose the Tigers was more built around established players and putting us, putting them into a system. So mm. being very new to the game, I needed the development. I needed to get better. Um, and it was a tough choice, but uh, it, was, it was one I'd certainly do every time over again. And, you know, I, I rate Brian George and to this day as the most influential person on my basketball career and much of it had to do with those three years at the Southeast Melbourne Magic. Gotcha. So three seasons in the NBL, you decide to make the move to the NBA. What factors went into that decision to leave home and try and play in America? Oh, look, I, it, was, it almost blindsided me. It came around so quickly. And mm. I remember uh, Gorgian coming in the training one day and telling me I needed to get an American agent, and I thought he was crazy. You know, I'd been playing the game for, for three years and had no idea. Um, so, I, you know, it improved pretty quickly. Um, went and found an American agent um, mm. on the recommendation of a, a coach that was close to me, but it, it you know, probably when I did that and understood more about the NBA was probably the the least enjoyable for nine months because I, you know, as a young athlete, you're always feeling like you're being evaluated no matter yeah. what you did. It was very surreal for me and, yeah, probably didn't handle that as well as people who've been around the sport longer may have uh, tended to get too concerned in what other people thought. But, sure. You know, I do remember the game after I got drafted, it was like a waiting game shoulders and I had a, a really great game and uh, found a way to, to the Mavericks to agree that I would stay and finish off the season hmm. uh, with the Magic and we you know we lost in the championship series and I was on a plane the next day to Dallas and you know the whole new world. That's incredible let's but let's talk about the draft process for you as an international prospect how difficult was that for you especially since it seems like you were still playing in Australia at the time of the draft? Yeah, it was, a, it was a, I believe, a Wednesday or Thursday morning. And back then, there was no pay TV in Australia. <laughs> we, we didn't have coverage. So one of the, the television stations had organized a live feed for us to watch oh, the I draft. Guess. And my teammates came in and watched with me and a few of my close friends and family. Um, I had had a, a guarantee from the Chicago Bulls that if I was available on the last pick of the first round, that they would take me, um, which in my mind was incredible. Um, mm. Obviously, everybody knows about the Chicago Bulls, and yeah. um, I, I'd never considered myself a first-round draft pick, knowing how raw I was. But uh, you know, Don Nelson is known for taking chances, and he certainly took a chance. And, uh, I was very appreciative of his faith in me, and probably added to the pressure, I suppose, of being a, a, a mid-first-round pick. And, uh, the, the process was just a whirlwind. Like I said, I didn't know very much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I did had no idea that I, anyone out there outside the Bulls was interested. Um, yeah, it was sitting in a room. Wow, that just happened. Get back to practice. <laughs> that's that's fascinating. At least it seems like it happened during the day for you. I was uh, I recently had Gert Hammock on the show, and Gert told me that he was in the Netherlands, and it was about four thirty in the morning when he got drafted. <laughs> Yeah, we were probably, you know, the draft probably started at about 10 in the morning. So it was around lunchtime, uh, you know, halfway through the first round that I got drafted. Um, yeah, we we honestly got through that and went to practice. Uh, so it became very normal very quickly again. And, you know, you, you found that, you know, 
very little media here had any ideas. Or, you know, the NBA wasn't as big here back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so there wasn't very much media involved. But uh, it just got back to work, and that was yeah. how I'd been programmed. That it was an opportunity. I had to get back to work, and I had to get better. Sure. So you're you're initially drafted by the Trailblazers at 18 and traded to the Mavericks. Did you know the whole time you were going to Dallas, or was there a period where you no, thought... No, I had no idea about anything that would happen on the day outside the outside the Chicago Bulls. And stuff. So uh, when I got tra- when I got drafted by Portland, I thought that was it. Um, had the Portland cap on. And I received a phone call from my agent five minutes later telling me I'd been traded to the Mavericks. <laughs> um, had Don Nelson on the phone for a quick chat, and uh, that was it. There was a little bit of confusion in the room. You know, we were all, sort of, I guess, celebrating, and, you know, we had no idea that it happened. So, again, just a, a lot of confusion on the day and a process I certainly wasn't familiar with because I hadn't grown up watching the NBA or following the draft. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, I- you know, when the dust settled, I was off to Dallas. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I talk to a lot of guys who say, you know, they were incredibly intimidated the first time they walked into that NBA facility. Now, teammates of guys they grew up idolizing, but you come from Australia. Did you have any of that or was this just, well, this is my job now? Yeah, a little bit. And I suppose that helped me a bit because when I did get to play some of the really big names internationally and in the NBA, to me, it didn't matter because... I didn't know who they were anyway. <laughs> um, and, you know, outside Michael Jordan was different. And, you know, someone like Shaquille O'Neal, who was clearly the most dominant big man of that, or the, the time I was there, especially physically, uh, that's a little bit different. But, you know, I, I always, you know, my mindset was always, well, you know, we've got to play against someone. It might as well be these guys. We might as well hit them. We might as well see how they go. And, uh, certainly wasn't intimidated. I was just as intimidated by the no-name guys because mm. they had something to prove as I was the bigger names. So you were coached by Jim Clemens that first year who got fired pretty quickly into the 97-98 season to be replaced by you know the great, the legend, Don Nelson. What, yep. was, what was playing for Don Nelson like? Interesting. Um, I, I, I still coach basketball to this day um, mm. at junior level and I've coached the seniors and there's a lot of the things that he taught me and some of the abstract ideas that he has that I took with me and probably as a young, naive kid, I probably didn't appreciate them as much as I should have because I was busy trying to improve myself and he was busy trying to make some changes and some of them worked and I didn't realise how well they worked until later on. But it was an experience. It was different. You know, he'd turn up to some practices with a cigar in his mouth. And, <laughs> you know, even his little, you know, a day where... Clearly, he wanted to give everybody a, a day off, a rest day. We all, but we'd all turned up, and we got in. And he said, "Anyway, if anyone can make a half court shot, you know, we'll go home." Try, you know, trying to create a little bit of team bonding, I suppose, a bit of enjoyment about mm-hmm. having a day off. And everybody missed, and there was this dread. So we got all those coaches. Okay, if any of us coaches make a three pointer, we'll have the day off. And they all missed. And I thought. <laughs> He went into the office and got the receptionist and asked her to make it. She made a layup. We'd have to pay off. And so she made her layup. And, but the process was just something. It was a very different of the way I've, uh, I've known him to give days off. And that, uh, that is something that you've obviously carried on as a, as a coach, right? You're, still, you're bringing out receptionists to give your kids days off during your coaching? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, not quite. I, I, I'll tell you one thing that was really interesting from a basketball perspective, though, and 
Dirk Nowitzki's the best in the world at it. Mm-hmm. John Nelson always to, to turn and face with the ball up high at your elbows and oh sorry with, at your eyebrows um, and create a closeout opportunity in the post and have the ability to shoot the ball without dipping it down to your waist or even your chest and really drilled in it, you know, keeping the ball above your head and being able to shoot it from there. Um, if a defender raised up, they were vulnerable. If they didn't raise up, you just shoot it. And, mm-hmm. uh, it seemed really different at the time. You know, we all got taught triple threat position, but he was really big on that. And, oh, I think that's something that's been really effective in, in the game of basketball to this day. And again, I think Dirk Whiskey, you know, the, where he releases the ball from is, is incredible and almost unblockable. And a lot of that came from, from Don Nelson in the early days. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, Dirk has had a Dirk has had an all right career for sure. <laughs> yeah, he's done okay. Hasn't he? Yeah, I, although I saw him, you know, as I said, I'm a 76ers fan. I saw the uh, the Sixers play the Mavericks uh, earlier in the season. It's kind of sad watching Dirk right now because you know he's certainly not the athlete that he was, and he's kind of hobbling around the court at this point. Yeah, look, I wouldn't say it's sad. I, I I've, I've loved his journey, and I think I, I, he's never going to be a Kobe Bryant. Mm-hmm type farewell to a player. No. Um, but look, my, my dog got a 16-year-old daughter who loves Dirk and thinks it's cool that I played with him. Um, I've been telling her, watch him while you can because he's special and you know, he doesn't have to be the quickest guy or the most athletic guy to have his 10 or 15 points because he's got great touch and knows the game. And I think the way he'll approach this season is with the craftiness and the touch that yeah, look, the Mavs aren't going to play finals. They're not going to make the playoffs, so there's no pressure on him to do that. I, I yeah. think we enjoy watching him while we can and celebrate what was probably an unexpected, amazing crowd. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember Dirk playing in that uh, the Nike Hoop Summit, I believe, when he really broke out. And it's just this this raw 18-year-old kid destroying the... The, uh, the high school players in America, and who would have known that he would have the career that he did? And he, you know, how much he's done for international players in the NBA as well. It's it, He's been incredible. Yeah, there are not many players who really, they, they do revolutionize their position. Um, you know, Michael Jordan clearly was like, Dirt has revolutionized that stretch floor position. Mm-hmm. Um, he really has. You know, back then, you know, not not as many, not as many big shot the ball from the perimeter back then. These days, it's almost a requirement that as a former you're able to shoot the three yeah. uh, and play and be able to put the ball on the floor. Back then, it was more a power position. Yeah, so well, he's yeah. done incredible things for the game. Absolutely. But we are here to talk about you. We're not here to talk about Dirk. So uh, let's let's talk about that rookie season. You play in 41 games, but you never really find consistent minutes. You know, what's going through your head at that point? Are you angry, frustrated, eager to prove them wrong? What are you thinking? Uh, fortunate. I, I still think I'm in the NBA. and <laughs> There are so many people who would love to have my opportunity and I need to keep working. And uh, probably gain a sense of confidence towards the end of the season when you know, it was clear we, we couldn't do anything with regard to finals and, and Don Nelson started having a real good look at some of the younger players and I found myself playing, you know, mid-20s, in the 30 minutes, many games and had a breakout game against the Boston Celtics where I had 26 and mm-hmm. had a couple of couple more 20-point games and, you know, played a role in probably one of my most 
when we beat the Chicago Bulls back in March of 98. And, uh, yeah, I felt like I belonged, I suppose, by the end of my rookie year. It's sure. fair to say the yeah the lockout couldn't have come at a worse time. Right. I felt like I was taking a little bit of momentum into the second year and it came to a bit of a grinding halt. Um, but, uh, no, look, I, I think I always felt that I... If I was, I felt I could find a place in the NBA, but never quite got there consistently enough. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, that second season still played in 41 games, but that was largely because of uh, the lockout, as you said. But you were getting less minutes. Why do you think you lost the playtime that second season? Uh, I never really want to guess. I, you know, I know that coming you know, the preseason, I was starting in the five. Mm-hmm. Um, and had a really good preseason. Was really, really happy with it. And you know, as, as we mentioned, Don Nelson had different ideas about guarding different people. The matchup mm-hmm. in the first game of the season, I can't recall who it was, but he liked Sean Bradley defensively clogging up. Sean had a fantastic game and kept rolling with it. Um, he had a really good period of time. So uh, good on. Uh, look, it's a. With regard to reason, I always come back to myself. If I was, if I was better and playing better, and didn't give it the, the coach a reason not to take me off when I was on, then I'd play. But um, hadn't quite evolved my game or my physicality to where it needed to be as hard as I worked, and yeah, you know, was always just that little bit off what was required. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess I'm going to make a little bit of a liar out of myself with what we just talked about. But that second season also did see the arrival of a 20 year old Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> what what was what was Baby Dirk like to be around that that raw, for you? Yeah, raw and homesick and sad, mm-hmm. um, fish out of water. Uh, a really close relationship with Steve Nash. Yeah. Uh, you know, the three of us lived in the same apartment building and spent quite a bit of time together. But I, from a basketball perspective, uh, you know, I've just never seen anyone shoot the ball so effortlessly even at that age and um you know he was that, that's what he was he was effortless he was certainly not physical and that's where don nelson rode him uh but you know his story has been told he it took him probably a year and a half or two years but when he quit uh it really quit for him yeah you know i think the only person i've ever seen with that kind of easy jump shot and that kind of easy range is like a kevin durant yeah, or, or even a Larry Bird. Yeah, sure. And that's probably a really easy comparison. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, so going into the third season, you get traded to Chicago. Finally, you uh, you end up with the Chicago yeah. Bulls for a second-round pick right before the season starts. You know, is that trade hard on you, or are you kind of looking forward to a new opportunity? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty loyal person and love the city of Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think there's always a bit of pride involved. But, yeah, at the end of the day, when you're traded for a second-round pick, it's because the team doesn't want you. Yeah. And that, that hurt a little bit, especially knowing that it all, well, feeling that I had more improvement left in me. But as you said, the the feeling was... And, you know, coming from Australia, again, where players don't get traded, it was a different... You know, I had to be in Chicago 48 hours later. Uh-huh. Um, so it was a bit of a process. Um, but we're going to a place where I was wanted, um, yeah, probably uh, into a really unsettled environment that was trying to establish a new identity. Everyone had left. Yeah. yeah. 
any all of the the superstars had left and they'd gone straight into rebuild mode so it was a it was a tough year uh, you know one that again I learned a lot from and you know probably culminated in you know it was, it was all, for me it was always the year after was coming up to a Sydney Olympic Games as well which was the only one I'll ever see in Australia in my lifetime, and the chance to participate in it was very exciting. And you know, the conversation around the preseason started pretty early with the Bulls, and they want—they suggested that they wanted me to try out. They were interested in having me back, but wouldn't guarantee, you know, even a minimum one-year deal the next year. So for for me to risk missing out in the Olympics and then miss out on an NBA contract as well was was probably a little bit too much. Yeah. So was... chose to go, chose to play in the Olympic Games instead of spending the the summer with their weights guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what? It's, it's, it's like I've mentioned earlier, if I was good enough and they just needed me back, they would have signed me. But I had a little bit to go and just wasn't quite, just wasn't quite good enough at that stage of my career. Sure. I mean, that had to be something of a frustrating season because. You know, you're getting 13 minutes a night, but you're you have career highs in points, rebounds, assists. You're playing well from a from a you perspective, but it seems like you're not ever getting the minutes. Yeah, look, there was a bit of a conversation around the reward for the guys who've been a the low minute guys through their golden era, the mm-hmm. and Will Purdue and the older guys. And of course, they brought in out. They wanted to get a lot of minutes into him, so I fell behind. Those guys, uh, you know, the relationship with the two older guys and the, the future of um, So, yeah, look, it was it, it was what it was. And yeah. it, was, it was one year. And, and again, I thought, uh, yeah, ironically, I think you know, if, if I jumped forward and, and gave myself a few more years' experience, I was a much better player three years later. Um, yeah. you know, probably four or five after some more time overseas and would have been much better uh, probably suited to the NBA and nearly had another crack at it um, a little bit later on. But, you know, when I look back for, for a 17 and a half year old tennis player to have had three years <laughs> in the NBA and still be learning, I was, I was going all right. Yeah, no, that's not bad at all. Comparing myself to most people. Yeah, you did. You doing just fine for sure on the right path. So, what was your relationship like with those guys who were you compete, uh, competing with in Chicago? I've had Will on the, Will Purdue on the show, and you know it's a very very nice man. Great, yeah, it was a, and that's what he is. He, he was fantastic. Dickie was fantastic. You know, Randy Brown was great. You know, they, probably they they had no need to be after being a part of that group, and probably could have been a little bit disenfranchised. With, mm-hmm. You know what had happened with the group, but uh, they were fantastic. Uh, you know, Hersey Hawkins was there that year, Fred Hoiberg. We had a really, really good group of people um, that made up that team. So certainly enjoyed that aspect of it. Sure. So like you say, after that, it's Olympics, and then you're back to the NBL. You're playing with the Victoria Titans. And uh, at this point, your game is coming alive like it never did in America. How You've got to be feeling great at this point because you are playing well. Yeah, I, I went back to, to play for Brian Gorge, and it, you know, I, the, the common thread. I, I just wanted to continue to get better, and mm-hmm. I knew that if I went anywhere in the world, I, you know, I wanted to spend some more time with him. And you know, in in reflection, if I could have gone to the NBA a year or two later, that would have been perfect. You can't say no. Right. Uh, so I wanted to get that extra year or two development 
um, back with him and he was coaching the club. Um, and I did get better. I, you know, it's funny. I came off the, I'd been in the NBA for three years, came off the bench mm-hmm. back home when I came home and people looked at me funny. And it's one of my, the things I'm proudest of because so much is made of starting a game of basketball and very rarely is it spoken about finishing a game of basketball. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it's much more important the five players that finish the game and, and start whichever five you like, but it's, there's just this real awe and you know, a need for players to want to start the game, and I've just never understood it. Oh, I mean, I, it's a you know, it's an ego thing. And you mentioned, you know, you say you've coached the junior level. I also coached a lot of youth basketball in in my time, and you're right. I wish you could get players and even more than players, parents to understand that it's not about who starts the game. It's about who finishes it. Absolutely. And look, even with the, we, we had a state team that won the national championships and we had one player who was extraordinarily upset that he wasn't a starter. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are a number of ways we could have handled it, but it was right before the So uh, we started him and played him three minutes. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, well done. Now you're a starter. <laughs> Different ways and means, but um, I, I've just never understood it. I just think you earn your minutes. Uh, you play where the coach wants you. And uh, again, the last three or four minutes of a basketball game, well, obviously, are the most important if it's close. I'm interested in this. I want to talk about this for a second. So. This kid who you had playing three minutes as a starter, did this solve his problems? Was he okay at this point? No, well, it was just for one game. We said, well, that's what starting is. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> that, that's what you asked. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. <laughs> All um, right. And, and, and then, you know, when he piped up, I had a fairly big crack and said, how dare you? I said, I came off the bench for three years in the NBA. I came off the bench at the Olympic Games. I came yeah. off the bench... Often in Russia, I came off the bench when I came back to Australia. said, how dare you be insulted by not being a starter? Um, And sort of put him back in his place a little bit. Yeah, that can be a difficult thing, uh, the the interplay between player and and coach. Yeah, look, I I think it's got to be transparency. Um, And it's, yeah, what I'm learning or I've learned is that the more you understand each individual, the better chance you've got to get through to them. Yeah, um, but they've got to learn to trust you as well. So we, we've got to be pretty open as coaches, and uh, again, pretty transparent. Otherwise, you know, they they spot they spot it when you're uh, when you're trying to make them feel happier. When you're uh, making things up to appease them, I think they're pretty cool. Agreed. All right. So uh, two seasons with Victoria, and uh, you know. Then you, or I'm sorry, yeah, a year in a year in Victoria, and then you leave Australia again. You play three seasons in Russia. Why did you make the decision to leave? Uh, the club folded. Okay, um, that's a good reason. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, and I was on a, a, a trip with the Australian team, playing in a, a tournament in Serbia, and was recruited by clubs from a few different European countries. And you know, I'd, I'd love to give you a fantastic reason as to why I went to Russia, but that's not the most. Right. Yeah, no, that, um, that makes sense. So uh, it was an incredible offer. It was more than I'd made in the NBA, and uh, I went. <laughs> and probably probably realized six or eight weeks in that I'd made a horrible choice. Uh, you know, I hated it. No one spoke English. It got down to, to minus 45 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Oh. Um, just really, really tough place to live and to play basketball. And probably felt sorry for myself for about, a week or two before I got over myself and 
just you know get through it um no one's here to help you just you know figure it out yourself and um that coupled with the fact that probably a, a month later they they signed martin Merced, who was a teammate of mine back at the mavericks and hmm. he spoke both english and uh russian really helped um so from game you know, counting down the days to the end of that first season, and a, and a very successful one. We made the the grand final of the the Russian Super League and mm-hmm. uh, won a most valuable player award in the in a European tournament that we played in. Um, but just wanted to get home and ended up staying in Russia for another two years because <laughs> I, I found a way to enjoy it. But I I realised how much I was developing and I'd, I'd gotten tougher. I'd, I'd I'd gotten less dependent on people around me and. As I mentioned, I was probably, you know, well, I know that after a year or two in Russia, if I had a shot at the NBA then, uh, I know that I would have had a shot if I hadn't already been there. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get used to the temperature difference between Australia and uh, Russia? Uh, I don't think so. Well, you, you do get used to it because it's an everyday thing. Um, it was funny, I, I, I would come back here to Australia. Of course, we, we work in Celsius, but in Fahrenheit, you get days that are about 50. And I'm walking around in you know, t-shirt, <laughs> shorts, and uh, just that warm. Um, it's amazing what your body adjusts to. Yeah, it really is. So, cut to 2005, and you are back where it all started with the Melbourne Tigers. Although you're in a very different role than you were 11 years prior, you go on to win two more NBL championships. You're you're named MVP of the league both of those times. You know, this has to be great. This has to be an unbelievable feeling. Yeah, it is, and you know, probably the the four or five most enjoyable years of my life, having been away for so long. Um, you know, you, you sit in a there was a, probably a defining moment in Russia in my third year where we won Russia's first ever European uh, competition in any sport since mm-hmm. they joined the European Union. Um, which was a massive moment for Russian sport, a massive moment for the city of Kazan and clearly our team. And they had a parade, they had parties, all kinds of things, and they they still talk about it. But I'd go home to my little two-bedroom apartment. I've got no one to share with. Sure. It became apparent that you know, if you do something pretty well, and by that stage I felt that I played basketball pretty well, you know, I wanted to share that with my family and friends. And at that stage, I had a a four-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son. Um, and I wanted them to be educated and, and to grow up in, in Melbourne. Um, mm-hmm. So I went home uh, for a number of reasons, and I was the happiest guy in the world to be home because I'd decided that that, that was where I was going to finish up. Yeah, and, then- um, and, and I just enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed sharing my stories. I enjoyed continuing to challenge challenge myself to work hard and the rookies and, um, you know, the, the team had just lost, you know, two of the guys you mentioned earlier, Andrew Gaze and Mark Brakey had just left the team. Um, and so every, in everyone's mind, they're going into a rebuild phase. And, you know, not many teams in a rebuild phase win the championship. Right. And we were very proud of, we were very <laughs> proud of that. And then we, we cut to 2010 and you decide to retire. Did you just know that at that point it was time to put your playing days behind you? Yeah, I'd had a pretty major hip surgery. I'd come back and played a few games, but I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do the volume of work required to to play at the level that I wanted to. And um, you know, I never wanted to be that guy where people would turn up to the game and say, "What is it you time?" So I, I retired when I felt like I still had. 
you know, very sad about it, but uh, it was nice to move on to a, another stage. And I suppose having not grown up with basketball, it was something that didn't impact me as much as it would have, I suppose, if, it was, if I'd grown up playing it since the time I was three or four. Sure. Um, but like every other guy that retires, you, know, you miss it. You don't always miss it. You, know, you don't miss the training. You miss the games and you miss the, the road trips and you miss the stories and the people. Um, yeah. the, the, the games are just the things you talk about when you get back together again. Right. Well, you don't, you don't stay gone for too long at that point. You end up coaching Melbourne for a couple of years before stepping down in 2014. How was that for you? Uh, well, how was it? it was, I felt very privileged to do it. I'd, I'd coached you know, since I retired. And, and you know, mm-hmm. the reason I coached or I, I realized I wanted to be was, you know, you mentioned Don Nelson before, um, Brian Gorge and various coaches I've had over the years that aren't going to be around forever to share these wonderful messages. And I'd, I'd noticed that people had started listening and I enjoyed sharing what I'd learned, uh, mm-hmm. traveling the world, playing basketball and uh, had some success at lower levels you know, in the first couple of years at high school level and at, uh, a lower senior level and was offered a job by the owners of the club uh, who had been sponsors when I'd been there as a player. Um, so it really was you know, thrown into the thrown into the floor. Very proud of the fact that we had the club's best result in, in five or six years. Uh, my last year there, uh, we got within one game of the championship series and they haven't been there since. Uh, so a few contributing factors individual improvement and consistency and continuity with a group. I don't like cutting people for the sake of cutting them without investing in them first. And yeah. the, the, the ownership model was very different to that, where if someone wasn't producing, that, replace them straight away. And uh, you know, For me, and probably Australian sport team coaches is a really big thing, something we, had, we hang our head on, probably even more so than America. Sure. So uh, let's let's start to wrap this up a little bit, and we'll we'll finish up with how I like to finish up on every show—a little quick game of word association. I'm gonna I'm gonna give okay. you some give you some player names, and just you tell me the first thing that comes to your head when I mention them. Doesn't have to be one word; just you know whatever comes to your head. Now okay. Let's, let's start with Andrew Gaze. Uh, legend. Sean Bradley. Oh, Sean Bradley. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, was. I don't want to just say tall because people say it to me, but probably could have been better than what he was if he had worked harder. Interesting, because, you know, number two pick in the draft of my 76ers at uh, one unfortunate year. Yeah, look, I, I just don't think he ever got out of his he could have. I don't think he loved the game as much as many people around him did. Sure. How about Cedric Sabalos? Really, really surprisingly good guy and good player. Really loved getting to know him just a little bit. Uh, how about Michael never, never forget oh, the shot, and, yeah. and I'll never forget the shot he hit against the Chicago Bulls. Sure, sure. sure. How about Michael Finley? Best Maverick uh, that there'd ever been before Dirk and Steve came along. Yeah, and so probably a better Maverick, you know, in the in the long term than Steve was, given how short he was there. I agree. Um, again, just because at the time such a small Dallas was a small market, and off Broadway, he, I don't think he ever really got the recognition he deserved. Love the fact that he's back there at the club and doing good things 
within the organization still. Absolutely. How about AC Green? Just what the Iron Man is exactly mm-hmm. what he was known as. Just his ability to get up and play every single night was incredible. Dennis Scott. Funnily enough, I'll never forget the tattoo on his arm. It had DCL on it, and you know he always said it was behind the line, which he said that's what it stood for. And Martin Merced, you know, he spoke broken English. He used to make a little bit of fun of him, and always come back and say he thought it was bacon, tomato, lettuce. Why you got a sandwich on your arm? So funnily enough, that's what sticks with me with him. Uh, how about the the aforementioned Steve Nash? Uh, hardest worker I've ever seen. Daylight second. Just Did you think that absolute utmost respect for Steve? I mean, when you when you were playing with Steve, did you ever think that this is a guy who could win two MVPs? No, it was a guy who got booed by fifteen thousand <laughs> touched the ball and just continued to work harder. He didn't drop his head. He didn't sulk. He didn't ask for a trade. He just he just worked harder. Um, yeah. He got absolutely every ounce out of his body and. I think if you did a if you did a quiz with with teammates of Steve, I, I don't think you'd be surprised to find that you know he would have been most of their favourite teammates. You know he just impacted people like that. Sure. How about Dirk? How about Dirk? Um, <laughs> he was an enigma. Um, his training regime was different. He had uh, you know, the, the different footwork stuff, the different shooting stuff. Um, he had his own coach come across from Germany. Um, but, you know, again, one of the nicest guys. They, they kind of broke the mold, those two, because they're the yeah. nicest guys you meet. And I really don't think fame ever really got to either of their heads. Sure. Well, I mean, Steve's Canadian, so, you know, it doesn't. they're, <laughs> yeah, they're the same person, regardless. True. <laughs> How about Elton Brand? Uh Oh, I only had him the year, but mm. just, you know, undersized, funnily enough, is the first thing. He played bigger than what he is. You know, yeah. He wasn't that big, but found a way to play much bigger. He's just a, a tough competitor. You mentioned this guy earlier, but uh, this is a favorite of mine from his time in Philadelphia, Hersey Hawkins. Yeah, just uh, one of the nicest guys you'll meet. Um, opened his house to the team. Uh, yeah, just pure gentleman. Tony Kukoc. He did okay, too. Tony yeah. Kukoc, well, fun. It was fun. Um, again, I, until Dirk came along, he was arguably one of the best international players to play in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clearly, there are a few more. Drazen Petrovic would obviously be in the conversation, but I, I think he was one of the best internationals ever. I don't know if you can speak to this, but I'd be curious, you know, now that when you got to the Bulls, that was post-Jordan and Pippen, you know, did, did you ever get from Tony that maybe that was kind of a relief that, you know, those guys who were kind of hard on him were gone and this was more his team now? No, I, I think he, his evolution from what I understand was, was just becoming Americanized. I, mm-hmm. I think that was the battle for him was he never saw himself as someone who, fit the American culture but got more and more used to it and more and, and enjoyed it more and more and I think as much as a person you know, his evolution was as much as a person as it was a player and I think he was already enjoying it more by the time they left and continued to after they left Sure, and it doesn't hurt that having them there pretty much guarantees you get to the finals exactly right <laughs> 
And the last guy I've got for you, and I honestly forgot he was a Chicago Bull. That's John Starks. Uh, never played with him. Oh, interesting. So don't have an opinion. Fair enough. All right. Well, a very anticlimactic way to go out, but it's the way we're going to go. Uh, is there any anything you want to plug before we get out of here, Chris? What do you got going no, on? No, no, no. I no, appreciate your time and interest in it. Uh, look, it was, it was an amazing ride, and I've grown a little bit like Keycatch. I've grown to love the game more and more as I've got older. Well, that's that's incredible. So this has been this week's episode of Tales from the Association. My guest has been Chris Anstey, and Chris, thank you so much for coming and talking. Thanks, Chris. I've enjoyed it.